What motivates you to make it through the tough times, perform at a high level, or keep your commitments? In general, externally motivated people do something for a reward or commendation. Internally motivated people perform for their own reasons and personal rewards. God is not beyond using various people and methods, including rewards, to motivate us to serve and obey Him. In the Old Testament, when God's people failed to follow Him with their whole hearts, the Lord sent some prophets to motivate them with the promise of blessing for obedience and others with a more fiery brand of ministry. Zechariah, for example, inspired God's people with Messiah's promised arrival through a series of eight visions, four sermons, and two oracles. What motivates you to obey God? I'm Ron Jones, and this is Something Good. God keeps His covenant with us, even when we disobey. But there is a cost to disobedience. Hi, Brian Davis here, and you're listening to Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones. The prophet Zechariah warned the Israelites about the consequences of sin and disobedience, but he also spoke of a faithful God who will one day keep every promise he has ever made. Ron takes us to the book of Zechariah next as he continues his teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Stay right here or visit somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to the program on your schedule. That's somethinggoodradio.org. Now here's Ron with part two of his message, Zachariah, Yahweh Remembers. That's section one of Zechariah. It's a lot to get your arms around and understand, but he's using these visions, most of them encouraging visions about how committed God is to Israel and how committed he is to their covenant and fulfilling every promise that he made to her. Now, chapter seven and eight is the next major section of the book. And chapter seven begins two years later with a committee from, uh, of men from Bethel inquiring of the priests about the continuing practice of fasting. Fasting was one of the sacred uh, disciplines that uh, ancient Israel uh, participated in, even while they were in captivity for those 70 years in Babylon. Ironically, Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he didn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast. He also said, not if you give and if you pray, but when you give and when you pray. I call these the three pillars of, of Jewish piety in the first century, giving, praying, fasting. Not if, but when. Are you practicing at least those spiritual disciplines? Well, in ancient Israel, even during the captivity, they were practicing uh, these spiritual disciplines. And as they came out of captivity, this committee of men came to inquire of the priests, should we continue doing this? This yielded four messages in chapters 7 and 8. And the first one rebukes the people for their selfish motives when they were fasting. You've ever served the Lord and uh, the reality is you, you were selfishly motivated in the way you served the Lord? I'm not asking you to answer that to me, but, you know, something to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said through Zechariah to the people, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? That's an important question for any of us to be confronted with. Pastor, was it for me that you preached that sermon? 
Worship leaders, was it for me that you, that you led in worship? The Lord goes on to say, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? This was in response to their inquiry about the practice of fasting. Henrietta Mears once said wisely, fasting is only profitable as an outward sign of an inward confession of sin. Merely refraining from eating will never bring a blessing. God wants a humble and contrite heart. Uh, that's important to remember in whatever service we bring to the Lord, whether it's preaching or singing or serving in kids' ministry or student ministry or on the guest services team or whatever it might be, bring a humble heart and a contrite heart before the Lord. The second message, also in chapter 7, reminds Judah of her past disobedience and the consequences of her unwillingness to obey the Lord. And this may surprise you, but the consequences that are highlighted in this message uh, include unanswered prayer. <laughs> now, most of us, including your pastor, if you ask me, how's your prayer life, it, it, it heaps a little bit of guilt, right? I, I always wish I could pray better and pray more. The Lord said to the people, chapter 7 and verse 13, as I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord. I sometimes hear people say, well, the Lord hears all of our prayers. No, he doesn't. The psalmist said, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This is why the ancient uh, saints used to talk about being on praying ground. You know what that is? Your sins are confessed before the Lord and you've engaged in repentance. Then bring your prayer to the Lord. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called out to me, and I would not hear. The Lord turns a deaf ear to any prayer that comes from the lips of somebody who has a heart that cherishes and holds on to some sin and refuses to confess and repent. Okay, it's just that simple. Third message is found in chapter 8. It predicts the coming peace and prosperity of Zion. And of course, uh, they, they had been uh, stubborn and rebellion, but the Lord had mixed feelings about her. Chapter two, or chapter eight and verse two, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. He has a passion for his people, right? He turns around and says, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. <laughs> kind of reminds me of my new puppy. I, did I tell you that I have a puppy? A sweet uh, English cream golden retriever. I, I don't know what got in Catherine and I's mind. We're now empty nesters, two kids that are out of college and on their own. And what do we do? We go get a puppy. A puppy. Puppies are a lot of work. Oh my, I feel like I have an infant in the house. And, and she's doing pretty well on some days. It's like three steps forward and five or six back. And I've said on a number of occasions, uh, were it not that this, this sweet puppy didn't wrap herself around my heart, I'd probably give her away by now, all right? Uh, but, but, but she's learning. And uh, she went to puppy school this week. Catherine said she, was, she failed. She, she was the worst in the class. Uh, so now I'm going to join her in puppy school next week, and I'll probably fail. 
But we understand this as parents, don't we? Or as puppy parents, those mixed feelings that we have about our kids, our children, or our puppies that we, we love with all of our hearts. As the Lord says of Israel, I was, I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, but I was also jealous for her with wrath. One minute, he just, I, I, I love you and I can't let you go. And the one next minute, I want to give you away. We understand that. The Lord goes on, though, to picture a day when old men and women will inhabit Jerusalem and boys and girls will play in the streets. Happy days are here again is the idea. You know how long it's been since old women and old men have inhabited Jerusalem and boys and girls have played in the streets? At least 70 years. But the Lord motivates them with a picture here of, of the peace and prosperity that's coming for Jerusalem. Chapter 8 and verse 12, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Uh, what, what an encouraging, positive, uplifting picture of tomorrow. Come on, Israel, get out of your spiritual lethargy. Get your priorities in line. This is what the Lord wants to do through you and for you. He's still committed to you, even though you don't show much of a commitment to him. And then the fourth message in chapter 8 envisions the recovery of joy in the kingdom of God, turning uh, these solemn fasts, which they participated in, into seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Look at chapter 8 and verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth. I told you they fasted a lot even during the 70 years of, trip, of, uh, of, of captivity. Uh, These fasts shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful fast, therefore love, truth, and peace. And in the verses that follows, it talks about uh, the season of joy and gladness that would be a part of ancient Israel, so much so that people would be inviting their friends and their neighbors to come to the holy city of Jerusalem to seek the Lord and entreat his favor. And I thought that's exactly how it should be in the church today. Where's that infectious, contagious joy of the Lord in your heart, in my heart, to where our friends and our neighbors say, what's going on with you? What's happening down there at that church? Oh, come along with us. I think we're in one of those seasons right now at Atlantic Shores. We talk about this as a staff and as elders and leaders in the church. This is a great season. It's a time of revitalization in this 40-plus-old church. But it's a great season. It's a season of joy and a season of uh, gladness and cheerful feasting on the Lord. We feasted on the Lord earlier today, didn't we? Uh, as we, just a time of worship. And that's just contagious and infectious. Still ahead, the second half of today's message with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. SomethingGoodRadio.org is the place to go to hear any of Ron's messages on demand. That's SomethingGoodRadio.org. When you stop by, check out our digital library where you can search to find answers to your biblical questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. You can stream for free and on demand at SomethingGoodRadio.org. And here's something else for you. Ron would like to bless you with a new resource today. 
one that goes along with the series you're hearing now, and it's called The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Two beautifully designed editions that cover the Old and New Testament, and both volumes can be yours today as you give your gift of $50 or more. That's volumes one and two of Ron's book, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. This is our way of saying thank you for your generous gift to support the ministry of Something Good Radio. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org or over the phone by calling our offices at 757-276-1099 or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia 23456. Now let's get back to Ron for the rest of today's message, Zechariah, Yahweh Remembers. Well, that brings us to the last section of the book, chapters 9 through 11, and boy, this, this could be a message in and of itself. I'm forced to summarize, but this is where uh, Zechariah envisions the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to ancient Israel and the worldwide kingdom his Messiah will establish. There are two oracles that appear in chapters 9 through 11, and they anticipate both the first and the second advents of the Christ or the Messiah. The first advent we celebrate is Christmas, when Messiah came. Ancient Israel rejected her Messiah. By the way, I've, I've, I've recently befriended a, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, Dr. David Sadaka, who will be with us here during the uh, Christmas season to talk about why Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Yeah, that'll get, you, get your attention. But it is uh, so exciting for me to meet somebody like Dr. Sadaka of Chosen People Ministries. And uh, he's going to be with us in Israel on some upcoming tours. And, um, but he is a Jewish man who believes in Jesus. Rare, rare among the Jewish people. Zechariah envisioned the first advent of the Christ and the second advent. And it should not surprise us that Zechariah skips right over the present church age, as every other prophet in the Old Testament does. You will search in vain in the Old Testament for any reference to the ecclesia, the church. Because in the Old Testament, the church is a mystery. A mystery is something that God once concealed and then at a future time, he chooses to reveal, okay? Many mysteries in the Bible. The church is one of them. And it was kept a mystery in the Old Testament. So, so it gets a little bit blurry sometimes when you read through the prophets to see the first and the second advent of Christ. But with the progress of Revelation, you get further down the ultimate road trip through the Bible, we have New Testament eyes to be able to look back and to see, oh, oh, okay, in the middle of this verse, now we're shifting over to the second advent of Christ, okay? By the way, when did the church become revealed? Matthew chapter 16. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a place of a pagan idolatry, gross pagan idolatry and darkness, and that was the place where he told them, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, what, a, what a powerful thing. The day of Pentecost, the church was born. We are living in that time between the advents, all right, in what's known as the church age. 
Zechariah skips right over that. But by chapter 14, and let me just hasten to summarize here, he is in the second advent. He's at the end of the age. Chapter 14 is all the way down the ultimate road trip through the Bible, where Christ returns at his second coming. And Zechariah tells us that when he returns, his feet will land upon the Mount of Olives. I wish I could take you to Jerusalem right now, to that hill just a little east of Jerusalem. The valley in between is the Kidron Valley. It's the same place from which Jesus ascended. Acts chapter 1 The disciples are there, Jesus is there, and two angels, and he he ascends back to the Father. And the angels look at the disciples and say, men of Galilee, why are you looking upwards? This same Jesus who left you will come back in the same way, to the same place. How do we know that? Because Zechariah tells us that at the end of the age, uh, he will return. And part of what Zechariah has in view here is the war of wars known as the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And Christ returns when his feet this time hit the Mount of Olives. He splits the mountain in two and creates this, this long valley. Some say this is how the city of Jerusalem, where all the nations have come to fight against God's people, will empty out and march to the valley of Jezreel where the battle of Armageddon will take place and Christ will defeat Israel's enemies and the enemies of God and then establish his millennial kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. Wow. This is motivation, Israel. Get your priorities in line. Yeah, I'm going to send you a Haggai to kind of get in your face about your misplaced financial priorities. But I'm sending you Zechariah to give you a glorious vision of the future. Friends, Bible prophecy should fill our hearts with hope and motivate us to serve the Lord faithfully and obey him until he comes. That's the big message here. There's a lot that we can get into and interesting places we can plow through. Chapter 11 has this... uh, Imagery of the shepherd. It's one of the most perplexing passages in the entire book, let alone the entire Old Testament, but it yields for us that prophecy about 30 pieces of silver and Jesus' betrayal by Judas. That's in Zechariah. So what motivates you to serve and obey the Lord? Why Why do you serve him in every capacity, any capacity here at the church? whether you teach a class or lead a life group or sing or serve on guest services, what motivates you to hang in there during the tough times? What motivates you to do your best? What motivates you to keep your spiritual commitments, your marital commitments, so that your yes means yes and your no means no? If Bible prophecy and and the reality of the Lord's soon return and this picture that he gives us all the way to the end of the age, if that's not enough motivation for you to serve the Lord faithfully and obey him meticulously, I don't know what is. The reality is ancient Israel didn't always do it right either. 
prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. But it doesn't negate the fact that Yahweh remembers. He remembers his commitments. He remembers his covenants. And whether you keep your end of the bargain or not, he's going to keep his. And his plan keeps marching forward all the way to the end of the age. Thanks for being here for today's Something Good radio message. Zechariah, Yahweh, remember us. And Dr. Ron Jones joins me now. Ron, the faithfulness of God is so clearly and wonderfully pictured here in Zechariah. He remains faithful to his promises to us, even in those times when we disobey. Any final thoughts from today's message as we close out today's Something Good radio broadcast? As a matter of fact, I do, Brian. I want to talk for a moment about what a covenant relationship is all about. We know from the Old Testament, including here in Zechariah, that God is in a covenant relationship with his people. And that means he holds up his end of the bargain even when we don't. But this type of relationship is not limited to God and his people. It also applies, for example, to marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of two people, a man and a wife, becoming one flesh. He goes on to say, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Uh, What we see here in Paul's letter is that the covenant relationship between husband and wife is similar in nature to the covenant between God and his church. Now, Brian, sadly, we live in a culture that devalues the institution of marriage, a society that no longer treats marriage as a covenant, but as a contract. We're told that if we fall out of love, uh, whatever that means, or if we're no longer happy, then we're free to leave and find someone else. Even Christian people have begun to sever the marriage relationship for reasons that God never intended. We say things like, my spouse isn't holding up his or her end of the bargain, so why should I hold up mine? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because that's exactly what you do when you're in a covenant relationship. So today, I want to encourage believers in Christ to take the marriage covenant every bit as seriously as God takes his covenant with us. He never leaves, never forsakes, uh, never divorces us due to poor performance. Now, I'm not here to condemn anyone who has gone through a divorce. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. He hates sin, but he does not hate sinners. My hope is merely that we will begin to value and respect the marriage covenant as God defines it, so that when trouble comes, uh, when the relationship is threatened, we'll be in a better position to fight through those struggles and remain faithful to the covenant promise we made before God, before our spouse, and before the witnesses that day. Armed with the truth of what marriage was designed by God to be, we are far more likely to preserve our marriages than to sever them. And that is what God does for us. And he instructs us to do the same in our marriages. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. That's Dr. Ron Jones and some final thoughts on the covenant relationship between God and man and between man and wife. Before we go, Ron, how about telling us what's in store for us tomorrow as you continue your teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. You know, Brian, it's hard to believe we're almost at the end of the Old Testament portion of the current series. 
But that's where we find ourselves. Malachi is the final book in the Old Testament, and that's our next stop on the ultimate road trip through the Bible. Now, last words are very often important words. They can linger in our hearts for a period of time, especially when those last words come from a friend or from a loved one. And here in Malachi, we see the last words God spoke to his people for 400 years. Let that sink in a bit, Brian. The prophet comes to speak to the Israelites, and once he is done, four centuries go by before John the Baptist uh, breaks God's silence, so to speak. Given that long period of silence, that should tell you how important Malachi's words are. And that's where we're headed next time as I continue my teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Join us then for Something Good when Dr. Ron Jones shares his message, Malachi, Making Great the Lord's Name. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying God bless and thanks for listening.